Now, we're back on the book of Samuel. We are now on the sixth installment on our series, Lessons from Asking God the Wrong Thing. Our study is now focused on 1 Samuel chapter 13. If, if this is new to you, if this is the first time you're going to hear this, let me give you a quick context. Uh, April 5 through 13 is when the Jews celebrated Passover. It was last week. It's called Pesach. Pesach is Passover. This holy week is a commemoration of Yahweh's deliverance for all the Jews that were saved from Egypt, their slavery from Egypt, and they were freed to go to the promised land. But our Christian tradition, we also celebrate last week, but it's a different one. We call it Passover. See, our, we believe that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Pesach or the Passover that the Jews celebrate. For us Christians, it takes a whole lot different meaning. But historically, what this means is that Israel passed through the sea. They met with Yahweh at Mount Sinai. They also, call, they also celebrate another Passover another festival. It's called Shavuot. When Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, Jews celebrate a festival. It's called Shavuot, or the giving of the commandments. But they stayed in the wilderness for 40 years. And again, the Jews celebrate another festival. It's called Sukkoth. Sukkoth means celebration of the tents or the tabernacles, 40 years. But then Moses died. Joshua took over. They entered Canaan. But then Joshua died. And then a series of judges, warriors followed. After that, you get Samson and Barak and Jephthah and Gideon, all those judges that you find in the book of Judges. But then here comes the cycle of rebellion, repentance, redemption. Rebellion, repentance, redemption. And it goes on for 400 years until finally the people of Israel said, enough is enough. We don't want any more judges, warriors. We want a king. We want more stability. We want more security in the kingdom. We want a king to rule over us so that we will be ready for battle anytime we want. The question is, is it possible to ask God for the wrong thing? And is it possible for God to grant the wrong thing? The big fat answer to that is yes. See, when Israel asked God for a king, this was one of the most blatant slap in the face prayer requests that they have ever asked from God. Because to ask God for a king is to reject God as king. Now, this is very clear in the book of Samuel. This is nothing but rebellion in the eyes of God. This is a rebellion with the capital R. This move is reminiscent of the coup d'etat Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve took the fruit and ate, it was rejecting God was saying, we don't need God to tell us what is good from evil. We can decide for ourselves. So this is reminiscent of what Adam and Eve did. It's the rejection of the rule of Yahweh. See, this is man's aspiration to be out of the rule of God. Listen, it is man's attempt to live a life outside of God's rule while enjoying the benefits of God's reign. When Israel asked for a king, they want the benefit, but they don't want God. God must be out of this. But the, the, cool, the, the interesting thing here is this. God granted their requests and gave them Shaul. Now, we know this already. Saul or Shaul in Hebrew literally means desired or desired by the people. Desired. So God gave them a king that embodies their desire. 
God gave them their desire, practically. All the bells and whistles. But the only qualification Shaul has are heights and looks. Heights and looks. This is exactly what we try to find when you want to find a life partner. Heights and looks. Right? Ladies? Heights and looks. Okay. Heights and looks. No, of course not. <laughs> well, sometimes character becomes secondary. And for the people of Israel, character was secondary. But you see, as much as this is about Shaul, this story is really about Israel. The story is about the nation of Israel. And God will prove His point in every failure that Shaul the king will do. God will be there telling the people of Israel, I told you. So chapter 10, just a little recap, 1 Samuel 10, Shaul officially became the first Messiah. Chapter 11, there was a battle against the Ammonites, and God fought against the Ammonites, and they won. It was God proving to the people of Israel, see, it's not your king, it's me. Chapter 12, Samuel gave his last speech, and his famous last words were seen in 1 Samuel 12, 24 to 25. This is what it says. Samuel said to the people, Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is a very serious warning from Prophet Samuel. He was addressing the people and their king. If you continue doing wicked things, you will be swept away. So what is this swept away? The phrase swept away, swept away is safa. It's the equivalent concept of the flood. Do you remember the flood, Noah? So Noah and his family went to the ark. We went there in Tennessee, Kentucky, by the way. Animals went inside, and the, river, and the water increased until there's no more land. And everything that breathes, according to the Bible, died. In the English translation, the word that was used, or the phrase that was used, was blotted out or wiped out or swept away. The same concept here. So all the wicked in the time of Noah were swept away by the flood. This is what Samuel was trying to tell the people. If you continue to do wickedly, you will be swept away. So the anticipation here is when you read 1 Samuel chapter 13, is this, will Israel continue to be faithful to God and flourish in Israel? Or will Israel continue to be wicked and be swept away? That is where we're coming from, chapter 13. So let me read to you the first four verses in Samuel 13. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open with me. Cell phones, iPads, Bibles, whatever you have. 1 Samuel 13. It says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. Kind of impossible for Samuel to reign for just one year. So this is not Samuel was one year old or Saul was one year old. Uh, there's a whole lot different explanation and a very interesting explanation to this one. But then you will see that when he was, it says that when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men. The, the interesting thing in the Hebrew language is that it's always poetic. So you get Saul lived for one year, then he became king, and then he reigned for two years. And then Saul chose 3,000 men. So one, two, three, and then two, one. Because it says in, in verse 2, 
2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, and 1,000 were with Jonathan. So this is like poetry. One, two, three, and then three, two, one. It says, the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. And Jonathan, that is his son, defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba or Gibeah. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join at Saul at Gilgal. This, this first passage, one, verses 1 through 4, is very interesting. What it's just trying to say is that when Saul started to become king, it was his son who started the kingship. Because when the people asked for a king, they wanted the king to fight their battles. But it seemed like Saul was not doing anything. So his son started the fight. And yet Saul blew the trumpet and saying, I was the one who did the fighting. That was what the Israelites heard. Saul was doing the fighting, but we know better. He's not doing the fighting. It was Jonathan who did the fighting. And then the last sentence said, and all the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Now, remember, this is about Israel. Israel asked for a king who will fight their battles. So when Saul blew the trumpet, it was like a disaster warning that you received from your cell phones last Wednesday. Tornado warning. Did you get it last Wednesday? This is like Saul blowing the trumpet and saying, there's a fight. You have to rally behind me because we will fight the Ammonites. Now, to understand why Saul had to do this, you've got to interpret this in the context of the last sentence. And the last sentence says, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. This is a, a battle cry. Why? Why was Saul giving a battle cry? Because it was his job to fight the battle. But he wants people to fight with him. But this bold move by Jonathan was taken seriously by the Philistine. So the Bible said that they became a stench. And as the people, they have become a stench to the Philistines. Now, many weeks ago, my wife bought a, a jar of kimchi, and she was excited to, to eat it. So when we came home at mealtime, she opened the, the jar of kimchi, and immediately my daughter said, ew, stinky. Anyone familiar with kimchi? First time you open that jar, it's going to stink. The whole house is going to stink. Imagine the people of Israel were a stench to the Philistines. This is what the narrator is trying to tell us. A stench that won't go away. It's so much so that the Philistines organized their, their chariots and cavalry about 30,000 chariots and 6,000 cavalry. This is a lot. This is actually what the Israelites had in mind. Why they want a king. They want a king who would raise an army and command it to fight for them in battles. But the Philistines were doing it. But this is also the very thing that God did not want the Israelites to have. That's why God was opposed to giving them a king. Because if they have a king, their focus now is transferred from God to the king. Their focus is on numbers, on chariots, and horses, but not on God anymore. You see, the lesson, of, the lesson of Passover, the lesson of Egypt, is very simple. 
It's the lesson that God single-handedly fought Pharaoh and released and gave redemption to the people of Israel. But they forgot. They forgot. The lesson of crossing the Red Sea is again telling the people single-handedly that Yahweh is the one who has divided the sea. They did nothing. Israel just simply watched. They just crossed the sea. God divided the sea. Israel did nothing. But the Israelites simply forgot about this. So when the Philistines organized for war, the scripture said this in verse 6. It says, When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves, in holes, in rocks, in tombs, and cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of God in Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Now, this is... <laughs> Are we missing something here? I'm asking because back in chapter 11, Saul rallied all the people of Israel, and he gathered about 300,000 plus. Now, let me show you why 300,000 plus came. 1 Samuel 11 verse 7 says, Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. The only reason why in chapter 11 there was a war and they won against the Ammonites was because the dread of the Lord came to the people. God inspired the people. So they came out as one man. The people found courage because the Lord was there. In contrast, chapter 13, the people followed Saul trembling. The people followed their chosen king trembling. Let me give you a quick insight here. When you trust in a man, when your trust is in a man, you should be afraid because there's no sort of guarantee to anything. But if your trust is in God, you don't have to be afraid. When your trust is in the ability of man, in his capability of rescue, in his wisdom and power, you bet your dollar there's no guarantee to it. But if you put your trust in God, who is all-powerful, who is all-wise, who is all-compassionate, you can be confident that God will be true to His promise. So when Saul blew the trumpet, it was like William Wallace, you know, the, the story, Braveheart. It was like he was the William Wallace in the movie Braveheart who defeated the garrisons of the Philistine. And the last sentence was, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And I think the people can see through it. The people know that it was not Saul. The people know it was Jonathan who attacked the garrison of the Philistines. And they know that they were alone in this fight. They know that God is not going to bless them in this fight. But what's interesting here is that Saul blew the trumpet and asked them to Gilgal. Why Gilgal? What's so special at Gilgal? Now, Gilgal was the place where Joshua circumcised all the men of Israel. Go back to Joshua chapter 5. The circumcision means God has taken away the reproach of Egypt. It is, God is like gave them the new identity as the people of God. Circumcision, that's what it is. So at Gilgal, they were circumcised. All Gilgal, right after the circumcision, they celebrated Pesach or Passover. The first Passover in the land of Canaan. You see, for 40 years, they were just hoping and looking and dreaming of going to the land flowing with milk and honey. Now that they're there, Joshua chapter 5, they celebrated Passover. 
It's like the realization of all their dreams. And not only that, at the end of Passover, the Bible said that this was the first time they ate of the produce of the land. Manna stopped coming because they were able to eat, eat the harvest from the field. So it's like all the combination of things. Passover, Pesach. And lastly, when Saul was crowned king, he was crowned king at Gilgal. And so this is like Saul thinking that when he blew the trumpet, he was banking on the idea that God will automatically give him his favor. He was also thinking that if he brings back the people in Gilgal, the people will be inspired to fight for him or to fight with him. What actually Saul is doing is that he's playing politics. But he was dead wrong. Because the climax of the story tells us differently. Let me read to you verse 8 through 11. It says, He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as they had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? When I was trying to study this passage, I couldn't help but notice something very interesting. Now, Shaul said, called the people in Gilgal and he waited seven days. Why seven days? Why does he have to wait for seven days? Now, there must be a festival that you've got to wait or you've got to do for seven days. Now, there are festivals that maybe I can use Thank you. All right. This is better. Where was I? So when I was studying this passage, I cannot notice that uh, Saul people in Gilgal and he waited seven days. Now, there must be a festival that lasts for seven days. And there are two festivals that fit the bill. One is Passover. Passover is seven days. Outside Israel, they celebrate it for eight days. But originally, it's seven days. There's also another one. It's called Sukkoth. You already know this. The 40 days, 40 years in the wilderness. Sukkoth, seven, also seven days. Now, I can't be 100% certain what kind of feast they celebrated here. But I'm banking on the... More on the Pesach. My reason are three things. Number one, they were in Gilgal. Gilgal is Passover. Second, it's a combination of burnt offerings and peace offerings. Third, which was for me a game changer, is Exodus 32. Anyone read Exodus 32? It's like, come on, Pastor. <laughs> okay, Exodus 32. Let me paint you the picture before we go to. So the people decided to God in Saul and Samuel. They asked for a king who would fight their battles. And on this occasion, Saul or Shaul was instructed to wait for Samuel because only Samuel was authorized the burnt offering and the peace offering. But Saul became impatient and proceeded. He broke the protocol of worship. Maybe I could get another one. Check. Test. Is that better? 
Okay. Uh, where was I? So Exodus 32. Now, again, Saul was supposed to wait patiently because Samuel is the only one authorized to offer the burnt offerings or the Allah offering. But he disobeyed. He broke protocol. Um, if you read Exodus 32, you will find that there's almost a similar theme, similar plot, similar outcome, and similar dilemma with what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 13. So Exodus chapter 32 and 1 Samuel 13 goes together. Now, what happened in, Samuel, uh, in Exodus 32 is that Moses went up to Mount Sinai and it took him a while to come back down. It took him 40 days before he can come down. And when he was not coming down, the people of Israel became so impatient that they said, maybe Moses is not coming back down. So they impatiently demanded Aaron to give them something who will go before them to the promised land. Let me read to you verse 1, Exodus 32 verse 1. Because the play of words is very important. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said up to him, Up, make us gods who will go before us. Does that sound familiar? Make us gods who shall go before us. This phrase is the same phrase when they asked God for a king. Give us a king who will fight our battles. It's the same thing. We don't want God. We want a king. Now the people are saying, we don't want Moses. Give us gods who will go before us. See, Aaron was like Saul because he was the one who's pressured to offer the sacrifice. Aaron was the one pressured to make them an idol. But it was the people, the same people, who asked for a king. It was the people who rejected Yahweh. It's the people who ultimately abandoned God. Aaron and Saul are Nothing but Patsy. They're the fall guys. And in this case, <clears throat> Saul was afraid to lose his grip on the kingdom. And Aaron was also afraid that, that he will lose the people. So Aaron created an idol because he could not wait for Moses. In the same way, Saul or King Saul could not wait for Samuel. So he offered the sacrifice. Now, if you look closely at what Saul offered and what Aaron offered, it's the same thing. Exodus chapter 32, verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made the proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. It's the same thing that Saul intended to offer. Burnt offerings and peace offerings. Do you see this? This is uncanny. 1 Samuel 13 and Exodus 32 are almost in the same pace. Same burnt offerings and peace offerings. But then when Saul offered the burnt offerings, right after he offered it, Samuel came. Just like a couple of seconds. You know, when you, when you try to, to beat the red light, so it's yellow, turns red, this is, you know, it's five seconds. So the moment Saul offered the burnt offering, Samuel came. It's like, it's like he's hiding somewhere. And now he's catching up and saying, voila, gotcha. You should not be offering this. 
And the first words that came from his mouth, from Samuel's mouth is, what have you done? What have you done? Now, this might be familiar to you. I have a four-year-old. So if you had one, it should be familiar to you. A couple of weeks ago, I was working on my sermon, and suddenly it became so quiet. It was afternoon. It was very quiet. You know, something's going on when your four-year-old suddenly becomes as quiet as a submarine, right? So I panicked. I looked for her, and I found her inside the bathroom. When I opened the bathroom, she was holding lipsticks, and there were smears all over the face and paintings on her arms. And I remember myself saying, what have you done? Yeah, I was talking about you. <laughs> this is also what Moses told Aaron when he came down from the mountain and, and Moses saw the, the golden calf and he said something to Aaron. Same thing, what have you done? And this is what Aaron said, Exodus 32, verse 22. Aaron said, let not the anger, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know, the people, they are set on evil. You know, very interesting, these this words, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know, in cartoons, when a bull is angry, there's smoke coming out from the nostrils. It's the same description that, that Aaron is saying, let not your anger burn hot. Because the people are set on evil. See, the first reflex is to blame someone. I mean, it's across the board. It happens to everyone. Aaron wasn't original here. Adam and Eve did the same thing. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. See, blame is the first reflex that we do. So in the same fashion, Saul also did the same thing. 1 Samuel 13, 11. And Saul said, after Samuel said, what have you done? Verse 11 says, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines has, had mustered at Michmash, you know what he's doing? It's because of the people and you did not come on time and the Philistines are gathering. It's not about me. He was blaming. Everyone's at fault except him. So verse 13 said, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. It's like if you're reading this, the Hebrew sounds like poetry. Let me give you the, the first three words that's interesting here. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. This is poetry. Let me show you why. Because the word Shaul means desired. Sorry, Samuel first. And Samuel said to Shaul, Samuel, um, Samuel said to Shaul, you have acted like a fool. In English, it rhymes already. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted like a fool. It rhymes. But in Hebrew, it's Shemuel, which means, means asked of God. Shaul means desired. And Shachal means fool. So the asked of God, Shemuel, told Shaul, the desire of the people, that you are a fool, Shachal. Shemuel, Shaul, Shachal. It's very interesting how Hebrew does it. I think the author is helping us to read with a certain conclusion that asking a king was a bad idea. Like I said, this is ultimately about the people of Israel who asked God for a king. 
that by asking a king, they have acted foolishly. Shakal. By asking a king, they have rejected God. By asking a king, they have thought that they have solved their constant problem of warfare. That by asking a king, they were probably thinking, we will finally be happy, be stable, be fine. Of course, they're wrong. It's the same thing with Adam and Eve. You see, by, by eating of the fruit, they're finally thinking, finally, we can decide on our own, decide between bad or good, bad or good. So we can finally say, ha, huh, God will not tell us what to do. We can determine for ourselves how to live independently of God. We can finally be happy. I think this is the same thing that people are doing right now. People are thinking right now that by eliminating God out of the picture, they would have thought that they would have solved their problem of dependency. See, if God is not in the picture, then people would not be accountable for anything. And therefore, they can do anything they want. So they say, my body, my choice. That's the whole idea behind it. If people think that by eliminating God, they will finally realize true happiness for happiness sake. See, this transgender ideology is practically based on this idea. This is not transgender ideology anymore. It's transgender theology. Even transgenders are fighting against other transgenders. They say, be true to yourself. Accept yourself for who you really are. Love yourself. Follow your heart. You are what you feel. Find the real you, really. See, after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they were still image bearers. See, in chapter, in chapter 2, the Bible said that Adam and Eve bear the image of God. Exactly the image of God. But when they were kicked out of the garden, they still bear the image, but they have become shadows of their true selves. The point of the Ten Commandments is to bring us back to the position where we can fully reflect and represent God in His holiness, to bear the image, to reflect that image. Let me give you one quick example here. Commandment number two is not about swearing. So there are Ten Commandments. And one of the commandments says in Exodus 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. This commandment has nothing to do with cursing. This commandment has nothing to do with misusing or mispronouncing the name of God. No. This commandment is about something else. You shall not take the name of the Lord of God in vain. In Hebrew, it's lotisa et shem Yahweh eleheinu elisha. What this means is that other translations say, you shall not carry the name, or shall not bear the name. Other translations would say, you shall mis, mis, not misuse. You shall, not, you shall misuse the name. See, the word for take is nasa. Now, remember, uh, the Hebrew words are pictorial. So when the Hebrew words use a word, it gives you a picture of something. It paints you a picture. So if you read further in Exodus chapter 20, down to verse chapter 28, Aaron, the high priest, was given a, an instruction to make his own clothing. He's the most fashionable in all Israelites. During ceremony, he was well-dressed. He was wearing something that no other person is wearing. He was also instructed to wear something on his chest. There were 12 gemstones on his chest, each representing the 12 tribes of Israel. What he's commanded to do is that every time he goes inside a temple, he would wear the breast piece 
all the names of the tribes of Israel because he would represent all the 12 tribes of Israel. Let me read to you Exodus 28, verse 29. It says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel. Hear that word? Bear the name? It's Nasah. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. It is not that, it's not that because God forgets. It, it, it's a, a, a poetic uh, play on words that every time he enters the tabernacle together with the breast piece, he's telling God, I am representing the people of Israel. What it means is that when Aaron enters the te temple, he symbolically enters carrying the 12 tribes of Israel. So literally, bearing the name of Israel is carrying their name on his chest. And if you aren't bored, go to verse 36, and you will find that God will instruct Aaron again to wear a headpiece, a turban. And in his turban, Aaron is made to wear, there's an inscription on the turban of Aaron that says, Holy to the Lord. Kadosh la Yahweh. So he's practically carrying both the names of Israel on his chest and the name of God on his turban. He's representing both the people and God at the same time. That is what it means to carry the name, to bear the name. So commandment number two is not about misusing or mispronouncing the name of God. It's about representing God, carrying his name. So think about you guys when you buy a t-shirt that has a statement something on, or, you know, big brands. You're carrying the brand. That's what it means. See, on Yom Kippur, that's a day of atonement, Aaron will do a certain ceremony. It's a very specific ceremony. He will choose two goats. One goat he will kill, drain the blood in a bucket, bring the bucket full of blood inside the most holy place, and offer it to God because blood represents life. And then he will come out from the temple, he will wash his hands, and he will take the other goat and put his hand on top of the goat. That is symbolically transferring all the sins of the people on the goat. This goat will be called the scapegoat. I'm not kidding. This is where we get the word scapegoat. The scapegoat is the patsy, the fall guy. Because he, who does not have any sin will carry the sin of the people symbolically. Again, another way of identifying what that carrying means. Leviticus 16 verse 22 says, The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. The word bear is nasa, the same that was used for bearing the name of God. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The goat will be set free in the wilderness and it will die there with the sins of the people. The goat was the patsy, but he's carrying the sins of the people. So, in other words, I'm saying to bear the name of God is really to carry his name on me, on my body, on my speech, on my actions. To bear the holy name of God is to reflect his holiness in me and all the things that I do. That's why there's the laws in Torah. Holiness is the trademark of God. So holiness must be shown in how I deal with my wife, 
how I deal with my parents, how I treat my neighbors. That's why all the Ten Commandments has something to do with you shall not. You shall not lie. You shall not take what is not yours. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not. Because it must show holiness. If I am an Israelite, I am to bear the name of God by treating my neighbor properly in holiness. That's what it means to bear the name of God. So for the Israelites, obeying the commandments is not how to get saved. They're not thinking about getting saved. They're already saved from Egypt. They're not slaves anymore. For them, obeying the Ten Commandments is a matter of vocation. Obeying the commandments is a matter of bearing the name of God in the image of God. Now, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. So technically, they bear or they carry the image of God. But when they rebelled and were kicked out of the garden, the way they carried the image now is according to how they understand good and evil. So they have their own interpretation of what is good and evil. So the, the way they carry the name of God or they, the way they represent God, the image of God, is how they understood through so their standard of good and evil. The commandments in the Bible were given so that man might carry the image of God in a manner that faithfully represents God. That is why on the issue of false prophets and false teachers, Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. And what does a tree bear or carry? Fruits. That's why Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. The followers of Jesus will be also known by their fruits. The fruits are the representation of the tree. What does a tree look like? You shall know the tree by their fruits. So the question is, what does your fruit look like? If you bear or carry the name of God or the image of God, what does your fruit look like? What are you known for in your workplace? What are you known for in your home? How will your spouse describe you? How will your kids describe you? How will people remember you when you're gone? What does your fruit look like? You see, by asking for a king, the people of Israel have moved one step farther away from carrying the name of God. Why? Because they want the benefits of the kingdom, but they don't want to represent the true king. How's that possible? See, when your kids go to school, when your kids get out of the house and they live on their own, they represent you because they carry your last name. Correct? It's the same thing with us. When we go out to the world, we're carrying God's name. That's why when people ask, are you a Christian? It means we're carrying Christ in us. It's not just the cross that you carry. It's the name of Christ that we carry. But people just want the benefit, not represent the true king. Saul wants the blessing of God. To bless him so that he can go to battle, but he does not want to obey the commandment of God. And I'm, I'm not blaming us all on this. Because on all of this, who stands to benefit? Now, we, we always say, but there's murder. We always ask, what's the motive behind? In all of this, who stands to benefit? I think there's only one who will stand to benefit on this. It's the enemy. 
See, the goal of the enemy is to change the imago Dei, the image of God in man. Its goal is to dehumanize us, to take away anything that makes us human. See, in the Bible, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when God said he created man in his image, he created man and woman. It's not just man, not just woman. He created man and Together, they were created as human beings made in the image of God. And the goal of the enemy is to dehumanize us. See, the goal of the enemy is to blur the lines. The, enemy, the goal of the enemy is to blur the lines between us and the animals and say, we are just animals. Isn't that evolution? The goal of the enemy is to blur the lines between us and angels. It's like from the very beginning, you are lofty. This is what Buddhism teaches. The goal of the enemy is to blur the lines between us and the planet. You're nothing but material. This is atheism, practically. See, the goal of the enemy is simple. The enemy first made us independent thinkers. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They took the tree and ate. They took of the fruit of the tree and ate to become independent thinkers. Now that they're independent thinkers without the context of God, their decision is marred. Their decision is faulty. And the enemy wants that. That's his first strategy. Second thing that he did, he divides us by, by making us hate and murder each other. Chapter 4 of Genesis, Ad Cain killed his brother, his own brother who was made in the image of God. The third is Genesis chapter 11. So when you read the Tower of Babel, this is a strange story in the book of Genesis. When you read the story of the Tower of Babel, it's like God coming down, confusing the people and giving them different languages. It's not all that. See, what's happening there in Genesis chapter 11 is that the people built a huge tower like a mountain. They're trying to replicate the Garden of Eden because the Garden of Eden is a mountain. So because people were kicked out from the garden, now they're trying to replicate that garden by building a, a very lofty tower. But on top of the tower, they want to invite God as if saying, God, we have made our own garden. You're invited, but on our own terms. See, this is the third strategy of the enemy. You get this from the book of Revelation as well. We preach on this. The book of Revelation says there will be one government that tells the people what to do. It will control the people what we buy or what we sell. It will control what we think and how we worship or not worship. The goal of the enemy is to eliminate the image of God, thereby eliminate God so that he can replace God, so that we can worship this enemy. This is very telling because this is exactly how he showed these true colors in the second temptation of Jesus. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you but bow down and worship me. The third strategy of the enemy is to take away everything that we trust on so that we can trust him and worship him. Now, I understand the pressure. Saul was made prince over the people. He's not supposed to act in independently. A king must represent the true king. But his heart is different. So Samuel said in verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart 
And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, his own heart. Samuel said, God has sought a man after his own heart. What does it mean? When you find someone to marry and you say, finally have found my soulmate. Anybody found a soulmate? Yeah? You feel that, you know, I found myself finally. There will come a time when you will fill each other's sentences because you know each other. You're, you're dancing with one beat. You, you know each other by heart. You can almost predict what's going to say, what's going to do. This is after your own heart. This is what, what Samuel is saying to Saul. God will seek someone who will be after his own heart. See, to really faithfully carry the name, to bear the name of God is to first feel the heartbeat of God. To have one desire, one will. To be a man after God's own heart is to say, not my will, but yours be done. This is what happened to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he finally said, I don't want to drink this cup because this cup is full of suffering. And yet, not my will, but yours be done. What does it mean to obey God? What's, what does it mean to become a man after his own heart? Or a woman after his own heart? You see, chapter 13 does not end logically, so you'll have to come back next week so that we can have part two. But what we know is that God has rejected Saul as king. And it goes without saying that God has finally made it obvious to the people of Israel that he has rejected their choice. See, the voice of the people is not the voice of God. God rejected the people of Israel in their choice. First, God granted their prayers so that God can teach them that their desire is wrong in the first place. Now, now I understand why Jesus taught us to pray for basic needs. Because praying the basic needs will never go wrong. When we pray for more than the basic needs, we cross the threshold of first asking, is this the will of God for me? Because of this, now I understand why on the same mountain, Jesus taught us not to worry, but to prioritize his kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God in these things, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now I understand why the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Because it is only when our hearts are molded and saturated and immersed in God is when we can truly say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My prayer, brothers and sisters, is that we not only understand the will of God when we pray, but, but we become a man and woman who's seeking the heart of God, who wants what he wants, who will desire what he will desire. So that when we pray, we're not guessing if this is the will of God. We know this is the will of God because we have delighted ourselves in him. Let's pray. God, we confess that you are good. We confess that you want everything that's good for us. We acknowledge, Lord, that the creation you did, the first two chapters of Genesis says that it was very good. Because you have a good plan for us.
that you wanted to have fellowship with us. But sometimes we think like crazy and we want to be independent from you because we want something for ourselves. Father, we confess that sometimes these desires are not aligned to your desires. But we also acknowledge, Father, that your will is the best for us. And that sometimes we don't understand why some things are not meant for us. And sometimes we don't understand why there are things that we think are good for us, but you don't want them for us. But right now, Father, we confess that we trust you. We trust that you know what's best for us. And we trust that you will not keep it from us because you love us. We are your children. Father, we pray that you will make us a man and woman after your heart. Make our desires your desire. Make our will like your will. Help us to see your will in our lives so that we can truly pray, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name.